that is ours in Christ and to live out of that liberty as children of God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, today we will be looking at Romans chapter 4, the last part of that chapter. And so we will be looking at chapter 4, verses 21 uh, to the end of the chapter. Okay, today as uh, we look at Galatians 4, uh, verses 21 through 31, I want us to get a, just a, a, another review of last week. And uh, I want us to think back about, we went over verses 1 through 20 in this chapter, and uh, we were thinking back to how Israel was both a son and a slave in the older administration, a son, and yet, in some sense, also a slave. And I was suggesting to you that This should be seen in terms of her partially keeping times, months, seasons, and years until the fullness of the time came in Jesus Christ. And the fullness of the time being the wrapping up of eternity. Okay. So the fullness of time. So times, months, seasons, and years look forward to a future which is wrapped up in eternity through the coming of the Son and then more fully through his death and resurrection. And this is also in contrast to the pagan world where times, months, seasons, and years is all that there is. They're looking at this world as an end in itself, as you know we did apart from Christ in our sin. And therefore the cycles of nature are what are most significant to them, looking at the next event on the calendar. And... What has happened in bringing the fullness of the time, God has brought his eternal son, his eternally begotten son, so that he's an eternal person and opens up to us eternity. And we're involved in that relationship through his redemptive work. We are made sons and daughters of God by adoption in the fullness of the times. And part of this is to be seen by Christ who came under the law that he might carry on the full history of redemption, that he might live out the full history of redemption and even the days, months, seasons, and years may then come and bring us into the fullness of everlasting life in him. And so he has given us his spirit, the spirit as the eschatological gift. And we are then sons and daughters of God with a spirit. So he's given us of his eternal son and eternal spirit. And what Paul then does is he represents his ministry to the Galatians in terms of this paradigm. You see, Paul has come to them. You see, Paul came to them previously. And Paul preached to them ministry of the fullness of the times. The truth of the gospel, this being the everlasting truth of the gospel. And they identified with him. You see, they found their lives in the heavenly life of the Son of God, and therefore, when he suffered in his weakness, you see, they did not despise it. 
though they would have despised weakness before because they focused on the weak things of this world. Here they did not despise weakness. They saw him in union with Christ, and I identified with him in his sufferings. And therefore, he says, look, our union together is at odds with what the Judaizers want. They want to seek you. They are seeking you because they want you to seek them. Not for your good, but that they may be exalted. You see, here in the fullness of the times, all are exalted in Christ Jesus. You see, the Judaizers don't want that. And they hate the glory of God and the fullness of times that has been revealed. They want a life of days, months, seasons, and years. A a life focused on this world where they can make this world as an end in itself. And where they can make themselves like the little dictators who control things with this world. Just like wicked people do. Control you with worldly things. And therefore, they're opposed to this suffering servant motif in Christ. And Paul says, I fear for you, but I wish I could come to you. You see, I long to come to you as Christ longs to come to his people. And therefore, he expresses the very heart of Christ, the very nature of this gospel, which he has brought. You see. And now, as we look at the story of the two women the two covenants, the two cities, the two sons. That story flows out of this perspective. He is calling us to see that in light of the fullness of the times that has come in Christ Jesus. Well, let's think about Galatians 4.21 to 5.1 briefly for a moment in general. We've already seen that Paul spoke of himself as a nursing mother, you see, who had now has to give birth to the Galatians all over again. Hmm, a nursing mother. As uh, Professor Dennison suggested to me the end of last class, perhaps there's a connection between that and Christ being born of a woman, you see, in the fullness of the time. Being born of a woman, and now Paul has this language of him being a nursing mother. And we're going to see that verb being born of caught up a lot in our passage today. Well, he speaks here in this story of two women. One with whom Paul himself identifies, the free woman, and one with whom the Judaizers identify. So this story is also going to be our involvement in redemptive history. And how does he begin it? You who want to be under the law, you see, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ redeemed us. He came under the law and redeemed us so that we are no longer under the age of the law, and he's given us this liberty in the fullness of the time. And then by contrast, he comes around and says, but you who want to be under the law, 
How ironic. Why would you want to go back to the law in its older administration when Christ has brought the fullness of the times? Why? If you're a Judaizer, it's because you hate the fullness of the times. You hate the liberty that has come in Christ Jesus. You want to dominate and control the people of God. And so the Judaizers are trying to bring the Galatians back under the law that they might dominate them. And so you see this whole story is partially in conflict with those who want to be under the law do not hear what the law says. Okay? And then he's going to associate, you see, the law with a slave woman. And the promise that has been fulfilled in this fullness of times, he's going to associate with the free woman. All right. So, it's going to be a story of the conflict between being under the law and laying hold of the fullness of the promise. And you can see some of that dynamic even at the end. How does he conclude with this? Verse 31. So then, brethren, we are children of the bondwoman. We are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. And then 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Well, what I'm going to suggest to you here is that we've got a number of things going on. We need, we need to look at this story in terms of the characters that are here. Do you remember in the last situation we had characters and they were had relationships with one another? Okay. This was a relational identity in the fullness of times. Here we have characters who are in relationship. And we have a set of characters on one side of the antithesis and another set of characters on the other set of, side of the antithesis. That is, those under the law, those in bondage, versus those who are heirs of the promise. You, in Christ. And heirs of the fullness of the time. And then we see those who are characters of the law, you see, being associated with that old covenant under the law versus you who participate in the fullness of the promise in Christ Jesus. And again, the conflict becomes between the two cities. The Jerusalem that is below or the present Jerusalem and the Jerusalem above. So that, in effect, we have characters associated with either the present Jerusalem or the Jerusalem above. We're starting to see a conflict. We're starting to see that the semi-eschatological dynamic involves a conflict. A conflict between those who live in bondage and you who engage in that conflict by standing firm in Christ Jesus and standing firm in the freedom that Christ, with which Christ has set you free. And so he's then going to speak of that conflict and call you to live out of it in Christ Jesus. What he wants you to do is he wants you to see 
your life in the drama of the history of redemption as that has come to its fullness in the dramatic conflict that is now taking place at the end of the ages. And therefore, you live in such a way that accords with it. You stand firm in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, it's not of your works and of what you do, pulling yourself up by your own brute straps. It is you standing firm in the grace of the fullness of the times, laying hold of Christ Jesus by faith and living out of that that is central to this apostle. So, while we may be baffled by the term allegory that he uses at the beginning of this story, I'm going to suggest to you, and we will deal with that at some point here, going to suggest to you that he is genuinely interpreting redemptive history and drawing us into it in the fullness of the times. Well... Let's look for a moment uh, at this conflict. I'm going to show you the way I think it partially works out. First of all, I suggested to you that he is actually talking about what the law really says. He's not just inventing some teaching story from the law. He's not just extrapolating and building a little fairy tale out of the law. He's actually teaching what the law teaches. He's showing us what was embodied in the law. As he says, do you not hear the law? Verse 21. Okay. And then he says, in effect, Abraham had two sons, one according to the flesh and one according to the spirit. Why might he say this? Abraham had two sons. Well... These Judaizers, they want to be sons of Abraham. Remember that? Back in 3.16 and 29, they want to be sons of Abraham. And so they think that's the only way to, to, you have to be under the law to be a son of Abraham. And he's saying, no, Abraham had two sons. Hear what the law said, one according to the flesh and one according to the promise. And he's already told us that we're the sons according to the promise. And here, this story, I'm going to suggest to you the way he does it is that this dynamic that exists in previous redemptive history is anticipatory of the fullness of the times. So that we have Isaac, you see, as identified with the city of God before the time. Isaac's identification with the city of God before the time means that that life of the city of God is embodied within him so that he's child of the promise. Now, we know from Galatians, is, is, is Isaac really the child of the promise, absolutely speaking? No. Who's the child of the promise? Jesus, Jesus Christ, where we find that. Third chapter, verse 16, okay? 
promise is not to many seed, but to one, that is to Christ. So if Isaac is a child of promise, he must be a child of promise in Jesus, right? So he is laying hold of the fullness of the time before the time. And he's in conflict with Ishmael, okay, who is a child of slavery and a bondage. And so there's an anticipation in this story of the fullness of the time. And so, uh, as I'm going to get to later, some people say, ah, well, this is just about the church, you see. This isn't about Jesus, because he's talking about Isaac, not talking about Jesus here. That's what some people say. But notice, Jesus has to be behind Isaac, right? Jesus is truly here in this history. And in conflict with Ishmael. Well, Ishmael's no type in the true sense, no type of Christ. But Ishmael is a representative, you see, of the flesh. He is attached to the present evil age in this history. And so Isaac then anticipates the fullness of the time as a son of promise. Paul does something very similar to this in Romans 9. If you look in Romans 9... Somebody want to read verses 6 to 13? Okay, why don't, you, why don't you stop there for the sake of time. Notice uh, what, what your translation said, something like natural children in verse 8. Uh, this is actually not the children of the flesh are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as children, for this is the word of promise. Okay, so... So here he's seeing in the Isaac situation, okay, uh, there is Isaac versus Esau, right? Uh, Excuse me. He's seeing the Isaac versus Ishmael situation here. It's going to be Jacob versus Esau in a minute. Isaac versus Ishmael. He's seeing a child according to the flesh, okay, versus that which is according to promise. And... What he has just said at the beginning is it's not all who are of Israel are of Israel. So even within the descendants of Abraham, not, you know, according to the flesh, they were not all the children of God. It was only those according to promise. So he has made a distinction even within the descendants, physical descendants of Abraham, between promise and those who were simply according to the flesh. Now, at this point, the choice is amongst those who are the physical descent of Abraham, but the ultimate choice is according to the Spirit. And he does the same thing next when he talks, you see, uh, um, there about Jacob and Esau. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And so Jacob becomes one of the promise, anticipating the age to come. Versus Esau, remaining of the flesh. And you see, Paul uses this then to, to anticipate the fullness of the promise where the Spirit is entirely showing the magnificence of his unique distinguishing characteristic by making it not even according to Abraham's children at all according to the flesh. You see, it's 
Jews and Gentiles alike. So when you get to Romans 9, verses 23 to 26, that's what he has. Somebody want to read that for us? Okay. So it is... It is of the one who calls, you see, he said in the patriarchal period. It's the one of calls. Now he's saying who are called, you see, from Jew and Gentile alike. I mean, this shows the fullness of the Spirit's work, where now the Spirit is showing his great supernatural work by being completely irrespective of any physical descent from Abraham in his choice, or being circumcised or what have you to become a part of those people. No, it's Jew and Gentile alike, the great supernatural work of this eschatological era, you see, which Hosea had predicted. So I want you to see that, that in effect, the story, uh, the redemptive history that Paul is interpreting in Galatians 3 is something he's done uh, does later in Romans 9. Okay, So he, he does this, uh, and it's not just simply some sort of story he's, he's made up to describe a situation in a polemical situation in Galatia. All right, well, let's go back to uh, uh, Galatians. And uh, I want you to see the relational categories. I talked to you about those. You'll notice the word sons, or son, appears here, verse 22, where there are two sons. And in verse 30, it appears three times. Of course, we remember that we already had that relational category of sonship when Jesus was the Son of God. God sent his Son. That should tell you why Isaac is son of the free woman. You see, he's united to the Son of God. <coughs> then you have children of the desolate, verse 27. And then by implication, children of the one with a husband, in verse 27. And then in verse 31, you have children of slave women. Children are in relation in this point, because they're children of the slave woman. And then implied, the idea of children is implied in verses 22 and 23 when it says, one of the slave woman, and 23, one of the free woman. And then in verse 28, children of promise. Okay, so, so he's looking at these children as being related to other characters or other arenas in the drama. That's what's going to happen here because, you see, the son of the slave woman, the Judaizers, don't they want to be related to the Galatians? Didn't Paul talk about that in the previous section? They want you to seek them. There is a relationship but it's a relationship of bondage. So Paul wants them to see that life that they presently are experiencing in Galatians with the Judaizers in light of redemptive history as they are, would become 
children of the slave woman. No. They're children of the free woman. And so he has other language here. Verse 26, mother. And I'm going to suggest to you that even the idea of slave woman may be a relational category because a slave woman has to be a slave of somebody, right? She is in relationship. And we have a slave woman in verse 22, 23, 30, and 31. And if slave woman can be seen in relationship in some sense, then it's polar opposite. It's mirrored character of the free woman is also in relationship. Well, he then talks about another relationship, brothers, in verses 28 to 31. What he has done is he has set up a drama. He has set up a drama of polar opposition. And sometimes we put dramatical things of polar opposites, one on one side and one on another, but I'm going to do it in terms of the semi-eschatological dynamic that we've been looking at. And so you see, you're going to have, on the one hand, the son of the free woman versus the son of the slave woman. Remember, Abraham had two sons. So he's going to focus first and foremost on those two sons. Son of the free woman versus the son of the slave woman. And obviously implied in this is that these are the children, interestingly enough, the ones who are free women were children of the desolate. So we're going to have to see why that's the case in a bit. They're children of the desolate. But they're no longer desolate, are they? So should I really be putting that up there? Actually, children of the desolate, she who was once desolate, you see, she who was once desolate here, desolate in the exile, but now considered not desolate because God has given her many children. Then, in effect, we have this contrast, therefore, between the mother, Jerusalem, Jerusalem above, and the mother, present Jerusalem. And implicitly, I've said son of slave woman. Well, we have the slave woman by implication, who being the mother, and we have the free woman. Do we have any other characters in the drama? Are there any other characters here? Yeah. Our favorite character, well, one of our favorite characters that we've seen a lot is Abraham, right? Abraham in the history has two sons. 
Abraham has two sons, one of the free woman and one of the slave woman. But his true identity ultimately is with the free woman, is, is it not? Because was not the promise made to Abraham of your seed, you see, Christ, and we being the true sons of Abraham? So truly, Abraham is identified with this. What is going on here? What is going on here? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that we partially have these relational categories because Paul is ultimately seeing this now in relationship to the fullness of the time. You remember the relational categories we had before. What were they? Son of God, right? And I've already tipped you off that this son of the free woman must be in union with the son of God. What else? We certainly had the father. Leave that off for a moment. And we had the spirit. And these three were in relationship to one another. Do we have the spirit here? Yes. Yes, we have the spirit here. Because we have verse 29. The one who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So we have according to the flesh... And according to the Spirit. And so he is the one according to the Spirit. He is a son in the Spirit. Is Isaac experiencing the fullness of the time before the time? Paul's been doing that. Implicitly, is Isaac experiencing the life to come of the Son of God, the fullness of eternity, in relationship to the Spirit before the time? And therefore, this conflict is an eschatological conflict between Isaac and Ishmael, which comes to its fullness now in the fullness of the time in Christ Jesus. Well, I want you to think for a moment. I'm not going to give you the full puzzle to this, but often in drama, often in drama, there has to, to, to bring a climax and a resolution to something, there has to be a character that enters into this arena of the enemy and then is triumphant, giving gifts to these in this arena. Will there be such a one who does that? Yes. I already got a yes, so we better get ahead of it. <coughs> who is it? Christ. What does it say? What did Paul say of him earlier in this chapter? 
born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law and his resurrection, you see, in order that we might receive the adoption of sons. You see that even the death and the resurrection of Christ is perhaps embodied in the life of Isaac. He anticipating union with the Son of God, who brings the fullness of the time. So that when you look at this story, this is not just a story between two peoples of God, and two cities of God, but it is the story behind both of Jesus Christ who brings about the resolution to this conflict for the people of God. For would you even have this apart from Christ? Would you now? Would you have a free woman apart from Jesus Christ? No. Would you have the people of God participating in the Jerusalem above? Would they, would she be their mother? No. And you would not have them participating in the life according to the Spirit. Do you see... That what Paul wants you to do, again, is see your life in terms of the fullness of the times in Jesus Christ. He wants you to see the conflict that exists now between, if you will, those in bondage and you in liberty. He wants you to see that conflict in terms of what Christ has accomplished. He's brought you the fullness of the times. How are you going to live? How are you going to live in that? You see, when you see others trying to manipulate you and manipulate you to make this world an end in itself, you're going to stand fast. How are you going to do that? You're going to pull up your own bootstraps? Is that what you're going to do? No, you're going to find your life in this story. You see, you're going to say, Christ has actually borne that bondage, legally, borne that bondage that you are actually trying to put me under. He has taken that bondage upon himself. And he has been raised from the dead eternally into the, into the heavenly places. And what is that bondage you're trying to put me under? You're trying to put me under focusing on the world as an end in itself. Making the cycles of creation an end in themselves. Making this world an end in itself. That's what you're trying to do. Christ has already borne that for me. Christ has already taken that legal, that bondage upon himself legally. And he's been raised from the dead. He's been liberated from that. I've been liberated from that in Christ Jesus. You see, I've been liberated from that. My life is in him. I go back to him. 
And that's what gives me confidence before the throne of God. That's what gives me the imperative to stand fast. You see, you're standing fast out of grace, not in your own strength. And you have every reason to stand fast against them. Because in that, you are laying hold of Christ by faith. And you're saying that what he has done is sufficient. What he has done is bring the fullness of the times, the fullness of eternity. Something far greater than that piddly thing that you're putting before me. You see, that's what Ishmael was like. He was a man according to the flesh, lived to the desires of the flesh. By the grace of God, Isaac was identified with the life of the Spirit to come in Christ. And so you are in that story. Well, he talks here about two covenants. Two covenants. He says, these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are slaves. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery to her children. Now, I'm going to suggest to you in a moment that, or after the break, that the focus here is really on the two cities, ultimately, not so much the two covenants. They support the two cities. But the two covenants are part of this. So, how are we going to look at the two covenants? Well, first of all, I want you to see that... I want to ask you a question. Should we look at these covenant, these two covenants as purely legal engagements, or do they have a relational category to them? In other words, is this purely legal... Or is there some relationship involved here? Now, I'm going to suggest to you that in one way, these are relational categories. We have relationships here. We've got a covenant which brings one, is connected to bondage, and there's a relational relationship between that covenant and the bondage that comes from it. Then we have the promise which is given to Abraham, related to Abraham, and now come in the fullness of times in the city above. And therefore, we have a relational category with that covenant. But now I'm going to ask you to think about this in relationship, this covenant in relationship to Galatians 4, verses 1 to 3. Because this covenant looks back to Christ coming under the law. Remember, he's saying in this place, you who want to be under the law, do you not hear what the law says? There were two covenants. So under the law is associated with one covenant from Mount Sinai. So how does he look at being under the law here? Somebody want to read for us one to three once again, a four. Okay. Now, we have the situation where Paul, I, I wrote this up in such a way last week as to suggest to you, let's see, we got a situation where Israel is a son and yet a slave in some respect. 
and I wrote it up for you like this. That she is a son, and even visibly a son, but also in some sense a slave. And noted the curse of the law having something to do with that, or slavery and bondage. Now, that's what Christ does. He ultimately comes under the law, and for Israel, he comes under the law in this way. If there is a relationship between this old covenant and under the law, and Paul has made a description of it here in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, does that covenant look to you like a pure covenant of works? Does it look to you like a covenant of works? Like the covenant of works made with Adam in the garden. What was the covenant of works made with Adam in the garden, implicitly? Do this and live. Okay? Do this and live. And if Adam did that, do this, would he be doing it by the redemptive grace of God? No, he would not. He would be doing it by the righteousness that God had created in him, right? He would not be doing it by redemptive grace. And so he would not be relying on the work of another. Okay. What is the result of the covenant of works when it's broken? When people fall? Death, right? Death, sin, and death. And this ultimate, complete sin and death. Any sonship there? No. No sonship there, is there? But is there sonship there? Yeah. There's sonship there and grace there. Paul is implicitly saying, this is a covenant of grace. But with a legal administration, my suggestion, with a unique legal administration that we've gone beyond. Okay. So if you look at this covenant, see some people look at this covenant and they want to call it a covenant of works. As if it is a strict republication of what was given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Okay. And they will then make that a category according to this world, as if there is a category of a covenant of works in the land of Egypt, in the land of Israel, and that Israelites are actually gaining their blessings by God's strict justice of their merits. How can that be? I mean, theologically, how can that be? How can anybody, a sinner, receive merit, good things even in the land of Israel by strict merit? They're deserving eternal judgment, right? No sinner can receive that. That's what they'll suggest. And it's a covenant of works. But this doesn't suggest that it's a covenant of works. It suggests, you see, that they're made sons that they are sons, but in some sense, sons who haven't received the full rights of inheritance. 
Okay? And I'm suggesting to you that manifests in this invisible arena in the land. There is still curse there together with a blessing. And so the fullness of the eschatological inheritance has not come. So Paul's contrast is ultimately between one era, which is, an, in, which is not the fullness, but is God's grace, but not the fullness of his grace, to an era which is the fullness of the times in Christ. So this covenant is not a covenant of works. But, but, what have the Judaizers made of it? If the Judaizers have absolutized the things of this world, if they have absolutized the land of Israel, okay, they've made that their eschatology. They've made this world their eschatology. Then they have perverted this into an absolute covenant of works. Paul says, you see, if you leave Christ... If you leave Christ, then you're going to have to keep the whole law by implication. And so they have perverted this. And they are leading to strict, absolute bondage here. So we ultimately have a situation where there is bondage, complete bondage here, that the Judaizers are bringing them back to. In other words, if you are trying to bring us backward in redemptive history, you're bringing us backward there, then you're bringing us backward to curse and bondage per se. You cannot go backward in the history of redemption. For the saints of the Old Testament lived out of this as if they were looking toward the age to come. You have severed that, and now you have gone back in redemptive history. And so in the fullness of the time, this conflict then becomes this dramatic conflict in its fullness manifest now in Christ as opposed to the seed of the flesh, the Judaizers. Well, I guess it's a good time for a break, so it's 8 o'clock. Any comments or questions? All right, we'll take a break. I hope I don't, you don't mind if I steal this from you. I got this from you, so. <laughs> I do not. Okay. If it is helpful, by all means. Thanks. I have no copyrights on my overdue
Okay, what uh, we're going to look at now is the two cities, and I'm going to give you a couple uh, couple structural things here that might show you the focus on the two cities. This is something that uh, I got from Reverend Dennerson. Uh, uh, structural uh, comparisons here. We got verse 22 where Abraham had two sons, one of the bond, one of the free. On the other strand, verse 31, we are not of the bond, but of the free. In the middle, we have verse 23, flesh versus promise, parallel to verse 30, flesh versus promise. Then going a little deeper, verse 24, we have a duality, the two. Verses 28 to 29, we have a duality. And verses 25, in the middle, we have verses 25 to 27, where you have two cities. Now, this, this would seem to focus us on the two cities, okay, as if these two cities are the primary focal point in this narrative. There is also another way of looking at this more specifically from verses, uh, in verses 25 through 26, where we have Hagar, Mount Sinai, and slavery... And this, this becomes a mirror relationship. Okay, Hagar, Mount Sinai, slavery, the present Jerusalem versus the Jerusalem above. And uh, this is meant to be a different diagram here. And then we have uh, slavery versus freedom. And then Mount Sinai, by implication, she, so Mount Zion is implied, and then our mother, so the mothers get contrasted at the end. All right, that's not very clear, but you can see Hagar at the one end, our mother here, the Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai, implicitly slavery, freedom, present Jerusalem, Jerusalem above. Another uh, structural suggestion that again focuses attention on the two Jerusalems, as if we have this conflict. Okay, especially here we see a conflict, a mirror relationship of conflict, focused on that of the two cities. Okay. And so the two cities become like the embodiment of the conflict. Think of that when you're thinking of the ancient world. Isn't it true that you have a city in conflict with another city? Okay. One city besieging another city. Well, here we have an eschatological conflict, a conflict between the city above and the present Jerusalem. Okay. And notice, she is in slavery with her children. Remember, it's Hagar that stands for the present Jerusalem, in slavery with her children. And Sarah, though not named, implicitly there, the mother of the free, right, who is related to the Jerusalem above. She is our mother. So those relational categories now get connected to a city category, right, to a city. And, of course, a city in the ancient world is a place not only where you might find your identity, but also your protection, right, and many valuable resources. Well, what is the situation here between the two cities? 
we have the two cities in conflict. But this conflict has arisen from, in its full sense, is the embodiment of a previous redemptive historical situation. So Paul is going to look back to a quotation from Isaiah 54. So we have Jerusalem above versus the present Jerusalem. Or interestingly enough, he says the now Jerusalem. Uh, he has used now in a different way before to talk about the fullness of the times. He now calls this the now Jerusalem. It's in slavery with her children. And he sets this up in terms of, or at least he explicates this in terms of the prophecy in Isaiah 54. And it is kind of interesting how the prophecy is laid out because it seems to be uh, that he is saying, he says, for it is written, the Jerusalem above is our mother, for it's written. And before that, he's saying the present Jerusalem, okay, is in, uh, is related, is in slavery, for she, for she is in slavery with her children. So if the fours here are at all related, we've got the present Jerusalem understood because of her present slavery, okay, as if according to the flesh. But what explains the Jerusalem above? The supernatural, the word of God, the prophetic word of promise, you see, would explain the Jerusalem above now come in redemptive history, as if this is the fullness of the promise and of supernaturalism. And we can see here how Paul interprets the prophets. Because he's going to go back to Isaiah 54, and if you remember, there's a prophecy of chapter right before that, we ever, all know, which is Isaiah what? 53, right? Okay, so Isaiah 53 and then 54.1 is what he quotes, which comes right after that. And he's going to be looking at this desolate situation of Jerusalem, okay, here in exile. And how is he going to interpret this prophecy? See, he's going to have a prophecy of the future Jerusalem here. Is he going to interpret this as a future millennial kingdom? No, he's going to interpret that as arriving now. So let's take a look at the text. Going back to Isaiah 54.1, you see the big quote there in Galatians 4. And... What I'd like to do is, you've seen the essential part in 54.1 already, so I want us to read what follows right after that. Okay, um, So verses uh, 2 to 4, would someone like to read that for us? Okay, 
will not you will remember you will not be put to shame you will remember no more the reproach of your widowhood you see what has happened is Israel has become a reproach and a byword Jerusalem has become desolate okay and he says that in the verses that follow he says you have been like a wife forsaken verse 6 and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth, she is rejected. Verse 7, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you back. In the future, I will gather you back. He is talking about the eschatological future. And when he says, enlarge the place of your tents, notice when she's forsaken and she's desolate, is she a city where a lot of people can inhabit? No, she's not, is she? I mean, because she's desolate, the people would be, you know, open to being attacked easily, right? But in the future, enlarge your tents. Expand your city. Expand your city to include what? The Gentiles, you see. More of the children now of her who was desolate than of him who has a husband, of her who has a husband. That is, the Gentiles are now included in the city of God. You see, that's going to relate to how Paul is going to be then quoting this passage. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Rejoice, O barren woman who does not bear, and break forth and shout, You were as later for more of the children of the desolate than of him who has, of her who has a husband. You see, rejoice, because more are the children. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. You, brethren. Who is he talking to? Jews? Gentiles, right? You are children of promise. You're the ones to whom this promise was made. You see? You Gentiles have been brought into this. He's saying the prophetic promises to Isaiah have been fulfilled. Semi-realized. See, this is how we interpret our Bible. We go back to the Old Testament, and we see how Old Testament quotes are picked up by the New Testament writers and how they're fulfilled. He's saying it's been accomplished. All right? And so, this is the promise. Remember the promise made to Abraham in 314? Is come to the Gentiles who receive the Spirit. Right? The promised age of the Spirit has come to the Gentiles. Therefore, it's children totally who are according to promise. It's not at all according to flesh. And whether you're physically descended of Abraham makes no difference. Okay? So, you don't have to be circumcised. See, that's how he begins the section. He says, you who want to be under the law, implicitly, you want to be Gentile, I mean, circumcised. You who want to be, think you have to become a child of Abraham according to the flesh. He says, don't you know that Abraham has two sons, and one is of the promise, and that anticipates the fullness of the promise, you see? That anticipates the fullness of the promise where you don't have to be circumcise and be related by physical descent to Abraham at all. 
This is the fullness of supernaturalism come in this semi-eschatological era, you see. And you've been made participants in it. How? Because Christ has already accomplished his death and resurrection. You see that? He's already done it, so the, the full manifestation of supernaturalism, the fullness of the times, has come in. And therefore, now being a child is compl- by, of God is completely by supernaturalism in its most magnificent sense. So, therefore, stand free in this liberty. And don't be hooked to a yoke of bondage by being circumcised. That's like saying, i got to go back to the former era and make that an end in itself. Do you see what you've done? You've said the promises of God have not been fulfilled. The promises of God are useless. Christ is useless. And you have said, I don't want the fullness of what he has brought. I want this piddly thing. I want this age. Well, you see then, that's how the dramatic conflict gets worked out in this situation. You've got to understand, or it's very useful to understand Paul's eschatological conflict here to understand the conflict that that goes on next. You see, the conflict that goes on between the, the one who is born, I, you brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise, but at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now. You see, you're not going to understand your conflict as well as you ought, as you might, if you say, this is unimportant. No. (laughs) This is the life in which you find your conflict in Christ Jesus. But first of all, he's focusing you on redemptive history. He's bringing you back to find your life in redemptive history as it has come to its fullness. You see, he started with Isaac and with the conflict between Isaac and Ishmael, and then you're to see your life in there. Do you get that? You are to see your life in the text so that you can see your life in the fullness of the time. See, this is how Paul is working. Paul has got you here. He wants you to be in this text. Here the previous patriarchal period, right? And then from here to here. And then you see the conflict that exists. This is not Jewish moralism. Jewish moralism wants to take you out of this. Jewish moralism wants you to see your life simply as a moral conflict between principles of that which is good and that which is bad. And therefore, we get our moral principles. This is all we do. We take our moral principles, and then we apply them to your life, 
in different situations. And that's the sum bonum of our teaching. That is not what Paul is doing. That is not sufficient. Only here do you lay hold of Christ in your life because you see your life in him and live out of it. Well, what's the conflict here? He talks about uh, this situation of persecution. He talks about the situation of persecution. Now, what, what can he mean here? We've already talked a little bit about this before. Is he saying that the Galatians were actually persecuted in the sense of being brought to the, you know, to the local magistrates and, and, and brought before floggings and all this kind of stuff? Now, that doesn't seem to be the case, but there is... Certainly a form, it seems like there's a form of persecution going on here. And I will suggest to you that at least he may have in mind here the very fact that the Judaizers are oppressing them and pressing them to be circumcised. That itself is this opposition where they're trying to get the people of God back and to to identify with the world. And then maybe there's some other connections here, you know, with persecution, that if you got circumcised, you could avoid some other forms of persecution from the Jewish synagogues, perhaps, etc. Okay. Well, notice... Here, if you are being persecuted, what is being persecuted? The one who is persecuting, who do they hate? When they hate you and seek to persecute you, who are they opposing? They're opposing Christ. That's where the dramatic conflict comes up. Okay, They are haters of the Lord Jesus Christ that you embody. And so it goes back to the fullness of the times. They hate the Son of God. They hate the Spirit. And therefore, they hate the life of that, the Son and the Spirit embodied in your life. That's the way you need to see this conflict. And so, what does he say? He says... Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. What does the scripture say? Again, he's interpreting scripture, isn't he? What does the scripture say? This isn't him inventing a story. This is what scripture says. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Okay? And so, this you have an indicative of who you are in Christ, and the imperative comes out of that. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Now, what is this conflict here? I've been suggesting to you that there is a conflict that is actually embodied um, in these verses. Uh, 
where you have uh, the situation of the bondwoman versus the free woman. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman should not be heir with the son of the free woman. You've got bondwoman here, son, uh, free woman, conflict with their sons, and then in the middle, you've got, for this bondwoman will not be heir with the son of the free woman. How does that fit here? Remember his language of heir to being an inheritance? It's you who are inheritors in Christ. And they don't want that. They want to be heirs of this world. You are the heir of that Jerusalem which is above. Now I'm going to ask you something here. Is this, is this an allegory in its philonic sense? Have you heard of Philo of Alexandria? Philo of Alexandria was a philosopher, a Jewish philosopher in Alexandria, which is a city in Egypt in the first century A.D. And what's happening in Egypt is this influence of Greek philosophy and of Greek ways of interpreting the Greek myths. Okay, Greek myths were interpreted in such a way as, you know, the Greeks were a little uncomfortable with all the things their gods were doing in those myths, especially the philosophers, so they wanted to interpret it as if that's not what really those myths are talking about. They're talking about some other things, some philosophical moral categories. Okay, so you have this allegorical interpretation that develops around this. And Philo uh, is a Jew, and he's doing something a little bit similar with the Old Testament. He's interpreting Old Testament uh, material, and I've only gone through some of Philo, so I, you know, I can. This is all tentative what I'm telling you right now, but uh, he's he goes through and interprets the Old Testament in such a way that at many times things he's got interpretations that are totally independent of the historical reality of the text. In other words, this thing represents the soul and its moral movement toward the divine, and he's and here Paul's talking. I mean the writer of the Old Testament is talking about some historical event. And what Philo does, he turns this into a general philosophical statement, which is irrespective of history. Okay, I mean, he might assert that this material is historical, but this allegorical interpretation could exist whether or not the material was historical. Okay, And, and so... It's, and it's generally about just general moral principles and philosophical principles. Now, is that what Paul is doing? Is he making an interpretation which is would exist irrespectively of the historical truth or falsity of the Old Testament? No. Isn't he making an interpretation that is inherently historical? In other words, what he's doing is he's saying, here's Isaac versus Ishmael, all right? And here the life of the future history of redemption is embodied in Isaac before the time. Christ is embodied in the life of Isaac before the time in Isaac's actual historical life. And therefore, 
it anticipates, that history anticipates the fullness of the times in Christ Jesus. This interpretation is totally dependent upon the historical accuracy of this history, right? And it's also completely tied up with the history. You can't unravel it from the history, can you? No. You can easily unravel Philo's interpretations from the history. Okay. So this is not Philonic allegory. Well... Somebody can still press me and say, well, why does he use the term allegory? And it may be, and again, this is tentative, that he may be using the term in a general sense. Okay? That the uh, philonic allegory may be a very, a, a, be a specific use of that term, and he may be using the term in a more general sense. All right? Actually, the, um, um, for instance, there are rhetoricians like Quintilian, in the first century, who talk about allegory as a literary convention. All right. Now, going through Quintilian's discussion of that, it does make it seem like the terms are just expressing something else. There doesn't seem to be any historical reality to that. Um, but there are some who claim, and I, ha- I don't have, I, I haven't had the time to go back through this. Uh, Jews who claim that the first century Palestinians uh, are using that and still asserting the historicity of the text, okay, and then making these interpretations from them. Although, even if that's true, from what I've read about their material, uh, I still think Paul is doing something radically different, and he shows himself too. So even if he feels comfortable enough using the term allegory in a general sense, he clearly shows that his interpretation is historical eschatological. Okay. Jews in Palestine are not making the same historical eschatological interpretation that he's making because their interpretations at best are connected to their Jewish eschatology. Okay. At best. Paul's interpretation is related to the redemptive historical eschatological realization in Christ Jesus. And so he is doing something very different. In fact, it's going to be very clear to the Judaizers that he is doing something very different, right? Because, you know, at the beginning of the section, he's, he's assuming that Judaizers are saying, you want to be sons of Abraham, right? To be a son of Abraham, you have to be circumcised. So what are the Jews implicitly neglecting? They're neglecting what the law says. The law says Abraham has two sons, one according to the flesh and one according to the spirit. And it's the one who, according to the spirit, embodies the life of the spirit to come, the supernatural embodiment of the kingdom of God to come, which is realized in its fullness in Christ Jesus. What are the Judaizers doing? No, Judaizers want strict linear progression from Abraham to Abraham's seed here, to Jews. Okay. Paul's interpretation is in conflict with theirs. This is truly what the law says. This is truly what the Word of God teaches. 
and it's embodied in the history, and it's embodied in the prophetic fulfillment of that history, now in Christ. Any comments or questions on that? Yeah. yeah. Some of the early church fathers uh, would define this allegorical concept as figural interpretation. So Paul's term here, allegorical, is more appropriately thought of, not in terms of Greek allegory, but, shall we say, Jewish Christian figural interpretation. Mm hmm yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Even the Jewish encyclopedia, when it goes through this, and on this thing on allegory, it claims that Paul in Galatians was not following Philonic allegory. They're trying to connect him to Palestinian. Okay. Uh, but uh, that's one of the reasons I made some distinctions there, too. Uh, I think they're wrong, though that article is wrong, in trying to equate Hebrews then with Philonic allegory. Uh, and, and that's a mistake because I think the writer of the Hebrews is doing the same thing that Paul was doing. Uh, and you can see his eschatological interpretation there in Hebrews uh, uh, chapters 8 through 10 of Jeremiah 31, 31. And that fits with the historical interpretation as well that he has. Yeah. I'm trying to make sense of this in today's world. I mean, the chance of you or I being tempted to take on the trappings of... Uh, Jewish life, law, uh, culture houses, quite remote. But my view, I, I would think that uh, <coughs> the word speaks to us today in Paul's epistle with respect to high church and having uh, ecclesiastical rank like the differentiation of rank in the Aaronic priesthood and having the procedure where you did X and Y and Z to uh, gain favor with God. And um, I don't mean to yell fire in a crowd theater, but you go into some high church setting and that's, that's what strikes me is that they're emulating trappings of uh, Jewish worship. Good. I mean, I, I think that you're right. They, they're representing Judaism. And I think this is especially what the Reformers saw embodied in Roman Catholicism, right? The Roman Catholics are going to re-sacrifice. They're going back to sacrifice every time they have the Mass. They're absolutizing the law, and of course they're perverting it in such a way that the law never even had, right? They're re-sacrificing, quote-unquote, the body of Christ. Um, then you've got all the visible trappings of the church to focus on the things that are seen, right, as, as confirmations of our faith, as if they want to go back to this arena in which there was some degree of focus on the things that are seen, even though those things look beyond themselves to the kingdom to come. Now... Paul speaks, you see, in 1 Corinthians 4, at the end of 4, after he's talked about the Old and New Covenant relationships in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, he says at the end of 4, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Even in relative contrast to the theocracy. And then expressing it in this eschatological antithesis for the things that are seen, 
are temporal, the things that are unseen are eternal, right? Um, one thing that I think is is going on here is if I, I've expressed to you like, the comparison between paganism, right, and the desire to go back to the law, right? So at every point, Paul's what Paul is saying is in direct antithesis to paganism. It's in direct antithesis to sin as in opposition to God in all the kingdoms of this world. So everywhere in which we see sin manifest itself in opposition to Christ, you're going to see this conflict, essentially. And you're going to see others trying to manipulate you to bring you into bondage to this world and to become a part of their party, you see, to be related to them, right? <laughs> in their bondage, and then bringing you into bondage. And here the liberty is that you see that no. Relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the eternal triune God, greater than you in every respect, is liberty. How am I going to give myself in bondage to you? And your agenda I've been liberated in Christ, and therefore I'm called to stand fast and to reject that evil. Well, I've tried to make some claims to you about the fact that this Paul is doing something unique here, and I've already kind of pointed this out to you, but there are some people who see this interpreted purely ecclesiologically, that is, that is in terms of the church, you see, okay, uh, Isaac and others, as opposed to the, uh, you know, being the church, the body of Christ, as opposed to um, uh, another group of people. And uh, I've said to you that I think that the life of Christ is embodied in this whole history, in this whole history. The life of Christ finally manifests now. And Paul makes that very explicit, doesn't he, in 5.1? Because he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. So you see, he's going back to Christ was born under the law, right? And set us free. And he's, therefore, it's implied, again, verse 2 of chapter 5, being a child of promise is a result of Christ being a benefit to you. For those who are circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit. See, Christ, again. Chapter 5, verse 4, you are united to Christ. I'm suggesting in the previous history of redemption because verse 4 says, for those seeking to be justified by law are severed from Christ. And 5, verse 5, he says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. Implying that in the previous history, we find being in Christ, you see, because now it's embodied in its fullness in Christ. This history has to be embodying Christ. Otherwise, he wouldn't be making these statements as a result. Again, 
He says in 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Thus, you see, Christ liberating us from the law is the ground. Christ liberating us from the law is the ground of the coming of the Jerusalem above to his people. You see, this is the freedom. Being born according to the Spirit. Very interesting. That is repeated. Being born according to the Spirit. To see, does that go back to Christ being born of a woman, being born under law, that he may redeem those under law, that we might receive the adoption as sons? Hmm. This being a union with that? Born now in liberty, you see? Does this reflect even on Christ himself, you see? Is this drama going to reflect on the drama of Christ? Christ here is the true mother. Is he not? For Paul saw himself a mother to the people of God. So if Christ, you see, in 5.1, it's for liberty that Christ set you free. Is it not Christ who is the true mother? I mean, we know that Christ can talk of himself as a mother, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. You know, how I would gather you as a hen gathers her chicks into her wings, but you were not willing, right? So there, he's looking himself as a mother. Here, Christ as mother. Christ associated with the Jerusalem above in his resurrection. And, of course, we have Paul identified with Christ. And he speaks of bringing, bringing to birth again the Galatians. And Paul was identified with the Jerusalem above. Well, I'm going to suggest to you then that it is the life of Christ that's manifest in this conflict. Because Christ is born of a woman born under the law. He legally takes upon himself the life of the bond, the son of the bond woman. Legally. And he bears the curse of that. He experiences the other side of the drama legally on behalf of of his people. And if you will, he is the one who becomes banished as a as if the besieged city. He dies right outside of Jerusalem. And yet bearing that full curse, experiencing the law and the whole history of redemption, he then is raised in newness of life, liberated from that bondage legally once again into the fullness of life. Son of God, resurrected from the dead into the Jerusalem that is above. He being the substance of the life of that city above. This, you see, is the indicative of your justification in the fullness of times, being justified in the Son of God who is raised from the dead and liberated in his resurrection.
And that's what this indicative is the basis of that imperative. Therefore, stand fast and do not be enslaved again to a yoke of bondage. You see, you have lived, Christ has lived this for you. You are in Christ. Do not go back to that. The liberty from bondage to the world, then, is the basis of Paul's imperatives for your life in Christ. You see, you begin and end from a different point of view, and that's the point of view from which the rest of this chapter, chapter 5, will go forward in speaking of the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of life in the kingdom above, the life, the age, and city of the Spirit, and the joy that is in this city. Just as he says, Rejoice, verse 27, O barren woman who does not bear Break forth and shout, you who are in labor, for more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. You see, this is your joy. This is your glory. That you, as the people of God, have been liberated from the bondage to this world and have been set free to a mother in which there is liberty. You are children of the free woman. Praise God. In Christ Jesus. Any questions? Okay. Call it a night.